0: Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 9, Christmas Special 2021.
1: Ah, those jingly bells. Don't we love them on that uh, all-too-familiar podcast jingle? Yeah,
0: sorry Cameron. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Had to be done. And it only means one thing. It is the Christmas episode. It, it is. is uh, and it's Christmas Eve.
0: Christmas Eve when you get this. And as we say every year, not Christmas Eve when we're recording it. No. Because that would be sad, wouldn't it?
1: And you might detect that uh, Tom is uh, an incubus of Lurg.
0: Yeah. <laughs> forget COVID, man flu is the real deal. Man flu is where the real suffering's at, people.
1: <laughs> so I think you you finished your throat lozenge. Yep. Uh,
0: hence why I've uh, gone down about half an octave, Hopefully,
1: <laughs> You've done the listeners that courtesy, yes. so we can't hear uh, a lozenge uh, nope. <laughs> working its way around lozenge. your mouth. <laughs> and obviously, a Christmas episode usually means it's a little bit more free and loose. Um, we've got a bit of a tradition. I think at one year we decided we were gonna do the twelve days of Christmas, which sounded really great when yes. we were in that enthusiastic phase. But Two
0: hours later. <laughs> <laughs> we were still recording. But twelve is the number that's stuck, hasn't it? We've we've all brought we've both brought six things each. So yeah. we did twelve things. So apologies, listeners. This one's gonna last for pretty much the whole of your Christmas dinner cookie time.
1: Just do it do it in bits. Yes. Do it in bits. Stick the sprouts on last and uh, maybe yes. get the turkey in now. Or your nut roast of, of choice. So anyway, I'm gonna stop waffling and I'm gonna Hand over to Tom, because Tom's going to kick off with something that isn't too festive, Festive, I hear.
0: Well, no, I mean, I usually end up with something uh, a little bit less light towards the start of mine, but I have got a couple. I, ne- I never can quite work out, is it because I'm just, you know, tired and that's that's kind of changing the way I approach bringing so-called light things to the podcast or is it because I think that some people like to have something to chew on during their downtime I don't know but anyway I've got a couple of chewy ones as part of my six I hope I've got some light ones as well but this is most definitely a chewy one and this one is related to that thing that I tend to go on about the the idea that we have to be very very careful Um, that we don't always just read people that write things that we 100% agree with. And there's been so much lately in the news about, um, you know, culture wars and echo chambers and nobody listening to anybody. And so, you know, universities have been quite a big part of that as well. They've been a central part of all of that. So I'm going to set a little bit of an example um, uh, I've picked something that is really quite pokey, but I do think it's it's interestingly argued. And I mean, you know that I like to read right across the piece of opinion pieces. Mm hmm. Um, I I do think that's a thing that everybody should do. So I have got a very provocative article here from The Spectator, which is a sort of rightwards leaning um, weekly news magazine. And it's by the author Lionel Shriver, who (laughs) tends to um, put, she tends to fairly fearlessly put some arguments that are... uh, quite difficult but I, I think even though I wouldn't say that I agreed with absolutely everything she said I think they are their points worth making so I'm going to make them sorry do it <laughs> I'm going to do that on online Lionel Shriver's behalf I'm going to read um, a, a edited down with apologies and um, for time purposes and um, her article the headline is the vanity of white guilt and it deals with, um, I guess, the fact that everybody is trying to navigate their way around the questions of how we we do something about the kind of systematic biases that exist in, in various setups, you know, in the world and, and that we have to be a little bit careful. But we don't do things that are tokenistic, that are self-indulgent, that are more about us than about the people that we're trying to be allies to. So although she goes at it here quite hard, I think there are some points that, that are well worth um, considering. So here she goes. When I was about 10, on return home from church, I ate a peach, the juice of which dribbled down my new pink frock. I scuttled to my room to change, bunching the dress under the bed. I emerged the picture of innocence, but I felt guilty. For weeks, the garment pulsed with accusation. Going to sleep, I always knew it was there. Sure enough, my mother discovered the wad while vacuuming and she was furious. She could have scrubbed out the juice had I told her about it right away. To this day, I'm mindful that you can only expunge stains while they're still fresh. And somewhere in there lurks a metaphor. I'm not prone to remembering the ingestion of individual pieces of fruit. That small memory looms as a touchstone for the experience of culpability. I'd not acted responsibly, and I'd compounded my malfeasance with concealment. When called out, I hung my head with nothing to say for myself. The last thing I inclined to do was to tear out and advertise to the whole neighbourhood that I'd been a bad little girl. Though the concept of collective white guilt has been with us since at least the 1960s, it's seen quite the fashionable resurgence. As universities, businesses and celebrities fall all over themselves to banner their racial blameworthiness, pale-faced mea culpas gather into a deafening chorus. Clarion declarations of moral dereliction do not have the texture of guilt They're prideful. They have the texture of preening. Elaborate racial apologies are a form of showing off. We're witnessing the spectacle of white people frantically competing with other white people over who can appear more self-excoriating, more self-loathing. But these people don't hate themselves. They hate other people. Mythical other people for the most part. All those terrible racist white folks to whom they can feel vastly superior. Now that white silence equals violence, they can also feel superior to regular going about their business white people who haven't managed to get prostrate pronouncements of self disgust on BuzzFeed. Proper guilt feels bad. Its emotional cousin, shame, feels even worse. Shame is soul destroying, the stuff of suicide. You don't parade shame in public, you're unlikely to leave the house. So none of last month's white protesters was ashamed. Maybe we should enlarge the lens. Frankly, I'm weary of the whole category white people, which throws folks of wildly different backgrounds, from Russians to Jews to Scots, into one big indiscriminate pot. So let's talk about people, full stop. As a species, the horrors to which we've subjected one another, including slavery but a great deal else, are so incomprehensibly dreadful that no one as an individual could conceivably bear the crushing weight of all that torture, mass murder and sadism. If guilt is inherited, then every last one of us should be condemned to Dante's nine circles of hell. None of us chose the world in which we emerged. We didn't select which awful history soaks the ground at our feet. It's insensible to feel guilty or ashamed about something you didn't do. It's entirely sensible to feel regret, sorrow and abhorrence about the likes of slavery. It's commendable to be informed about the past and to try to understand the nature of its wretchedness, as it's also commendable to strain to leave the world a little better than you found it. But claiming that what happened before you were born is all your fault is not only ridiculous, it's vain. So, I mean, as I said, she goes at it in ways that I wouldn't necessarily agree with every part of it. But I think we've talked about the point that it's very, very easy, isn't it, to go on social media and stick a big black square up and and watch the likes rolling in. But it's much harder to actually have a, an interesting, nuanced conversation about what we can do now to to make sure that we do kind of make sure that everybody's got the chance that they deserve that everybody's you know not affected by those systematic biases that exist in the world and i i think the self indulgence sometimes that we we see you know it's not actually really helping enormously sometimes i mean some people would say it's baby steps it is baby steps you know you've got to you've got to start from a position of saying that you know that these these systematic things are bad, and they, and they need dismantling, and they need sorting out. But I've always had a bit of a suspicion of the people that kind of do that in a very unnuanced way. Say thank you very much, job done, and wait for the pat on the back. Because mm. getting on with it quietly and in context and in a nuanced way is is much harder, and probably doesn't give you that instant. Gratification. So while Lionel Shriver does tend to give you, a, you know, a bit of a slap in the face when she writes these opinion articles, and as I said, I wouldn't agree with absolutely, every, you know, the whole way that she goes in the argument. Sometimes you do need to read this stuff and just stop yourself and think, well, am I am I doing this properly? Am I am I just doing the things that people are going to see and and applaud and say, oh, very well done, well done? Aren't we doing something good? Or are you really getting down into the into the sort of depths and and dealing with the more difficult, more nuanced things that are much harder to wrap up into a post or a picture or a, you know some kind of slogan or meme?
1: Yes, I agree with everything you just said, and I think it's one of the difficulties of living in such a fast-paced Western world, if 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 I can maybe put it that way, because everybody's so quick to jump. On the bandwagon, and there is pressure to be quick to do that. I think we spoke about this maybe a year ago. I think I've lost all sense of time <laughs> um, when the Black Lives Matter movement sort of found its place on on um, Instagram um, in the wake of um, the murder of George Floyd, and it was just so fast, and it was a wave of if you weren't if you weren't putting up a black square, then you should feel ashamed of yourself you weren't part of that um zeitgeist is that the right word I might be, be the wrong word I never know the right words but anyway it, it it felt like a moment in time and if you weren't on the pulse and if you weren't responding quickly to that then you know you weren't then you ought to be ashamed of yourself um and I, the thing that struck me when you were doing all of that is I always get I always get quite nervous and sweaty when when, when when I bring one of my articles yeah but I think that's the right reaction <laughs> yeah. because I think what I'm reacting to is oh gosh I'm going to have to say something in response to this now and I can't because I need to think I need to think slowly and I need to think in the company of others who are also thinking and I need to listen um, this is not a quick fix as you, as you said this is a slow progression towards being better people, a better society. And I i, I wonder if that's even possible. I, d- I don't know. I don't know whether that's even possible.
0: No, but it does involve thinking and a little bit less kind of just, as you say, throwing things out there and copying other people, doesn't it? And, yeah. and as I said, I think it's really important to read right across the piece and I would I wouldn't agree with absolutely everything I mean that was an edited down version there were bits in there as well which I've edited out which went a little bit too far down the line for me but what I do find is that Lionel Shriver is very very good at nailing self-indulgence and vanity masquerading as doing the right thing and and I I find that very refreshing and uncomfortable though it is to read her articles I mean she tends to write in the in the right leaning press like the spectator she's often uh, on the opinion pages of the times as well mm. there's always something to take away even if it is just a check and a and a stop and a am i really thinking about this properly or am I doing this for the right reasons or, or is this kind of massively self-indulgent and one of my one of my more light things I'm going to bring later on we'll have a connection with that theme that am I doing things for the right reason or am I uh, you know self-indulgent and vain so there mm. we go <laughs>
1: And I'm just going to need some time to think about that, I yeah. think. I'm not going to say any more on that. But thank you for bringing that to uh, to our ears. Okay, so quite a heavy entry from me first as well.
0: You're competing with me.
1: Uh, Trying not to. Um, as listeners who listen to our podcast regularly will know, we're both fans of podcasts. Um, and one that I stumbled across recently comes from the BBC World Service. It's the story of AIDS. So quite heavy subject matter. And I found it particularly fascinating um, because it ranges, it ranges from the kind of the the beginnings, the early years of the HIV/AIDS crisis, and looking at stories, particularly from America, but it then also has a look at how South Africa became the epicenter of the global HIV/AIDS crisis, and also looks at aids denialism um, from its senior political figures and how uh, medical practitioners on the ground were trying to counter that narrative often uh, in ways that were putting themselves in in sort of compromising situations with regard to their own safety and i just found it really fascinating because it dealt with a lot of different perspectives kind of ranges from the world of science to the kind of very human stories um, on the ground, also protests, the AIDS protests in America and obviously across the globe. So I just found it fascinating and it kind of led me on a bit of a journey on this theme it it took me to a really excellent documentary on the work of nurses and caregivers um, in san francisco general hospital there's a documentary made about their work um, called 5b because the ward that they built was ward 5b in 1983 Um, and it was um, it basically kind of created a model that was rolled out globally practices that were based in humanity holistic well-being in a time of Really great uncertainty for HIV and AIDS patients and their families, um, and for those of you who have seen the fantastic "It's a Sin" by Russell T. Davis, which I know has smashed a load of um, a load of wa- award, a war, received a load of awards, and um, was just generally a great piece of drama that looks at the real lives of um, HIV and AIDS sufferers in 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 the UK. So. If you're interested, and if you want to find out more detail, then you've got a couple of different, um couple of different out- outlets there to to sink your teeth into that I've found particularly fascinating.
0: Ah, the World Service is great, and I'm a little bit young to to remember really in detail the time of you know the real kind of fear around HIV and AIDS. It was you know I was pretty small, but. Some of the parallels are really interesting, aren't yeah. they? With with the present day, the fact that it was it was seen as a as a gay man's disease, wasn't it originally, it was. and and therefore kind of there was the stigma going on there. So, yeah, loads of interesting stuff. I haven't watched listened to that, uh, but I bet it's really good.
1: Yeah, and it's just an interesting exposes kind of. Different cultural dimensions, um, yeah, and 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 again, I like it that it's coming from sort of real testimonies—people who testimonies of those who were there and experienced it um, firsthand and survived.
0: Lovely. Okay. Possibly not much lighter from me, but but different, and probably a little bit linked to this this idea of just thinking a little bit before you stoke the culture wars. Probably, I think this is this is from a, a writer called James Marriott who writes in the Times. Um, and he—he's a fantastic writer. He's their uh, sort of podcast and books critic. But he—he he, annoyingly in his byline photo, he, he looks incredibly young, but very, very good. So I—I I enjoyed this article enough that I'm going to bring it to the podcast, even though perhaps it comes across as potentially in the same sort of ballpark as the last one. But it links to my little thing that I often go on about in these light episodes. I've listened back to a few of them and I I do tend to go on about the likes of Amazon and Facebook and privacy and online kind of things. And there there was one, wasn't there, uh, last year where I I got you a bit... um, I get a bit worried because I was going on about Alexa and you you had one in your house. And all oh, that yeah, that.
1: <laughs> it's all right. So, I know I just switch on the red dot now and uh, dot. It, it can't listen.
0: <laughs> OK, uh, I'll, I'll use that if I ever find myself face to face with one. And um, so this is linked to that. And I just really enjoyed the article and thought that it it was worth having a think about in that downtime between Christmas and New Year. Just to kind of, again, set some New Year's resolutions to approach the, the Twitter sphere with a, with a careful kind of eye. So here we go. This is by James Marriott. It is a terrible thing never to forget. In the great Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges' story, Funes the Memorious," a young man named Ireneo Funes is condemned to remember every moment he's ever lived. His present, his past, his most trivial memories are constantly so rich and so clear to him that his life has become unbearable. I no longer find it possible to read Borges' story without thinking of the internet. Our words and gestures fade in memory. Old photographs are lost, but online, every dumb picture, every unfinished conversation and every idle feud is preserved as perfectly as one of Funes' memories. These things go on existing as vividly, as angrily and as pointlessly as they did when you hit the enter key and closed the Twitter tab in righteous disgust. There is no forgetting, no mercy of slow disappearance. Like Funes, we are condemned to live in the appalling glare of an eternal present. I think this has changed us profoundly. I read last week, and this was published in in November, so it's a little bit more than last week now. I read last week of the rediscovery of anti-Semitic messages sent by the cricketer Asim Rafiq as a teenager. Without the internet, those messages could never have been found. That nasty fragment of the past would have been lost irrevocably. But the internet did not just preserve those messages, I think it changed them too. The immediacy of the internet, the way it preserves stuff, keeps it instantly available, ties it to the same profile you still use now, makes even the distant past belong to the present in a way that would have once seemed incomprehensible. For many of Rafik's severer critics, there was no difference between the teenager and the man. Online, everything exists equally or at once. In this land of no forgetting, you do not exist moment to moment in possession of that liquid and mutable thing, a human personality. You are instead a kind of archival aggregate of every clever and every fatuous thing you've ever said. Online, we're not so much people as vast unwieldy filing cabinets waiting to be browsed by our friends or raided by our enemies. It is from here that so much of the fury of the internet derives. No online enemy offends you in this moment only. A scroll through an antagonist's profile will inevitably reveal an almost inexhaustible history of contemptuous ideas and views to hate and to return to regularly. Features like Facebook's On This Day contribute to the atmosphere of chaotic simultaneity. Memories of parties, of funerals, of old lovers arrive without invitation and without reason. The past lurches meaninglessly towards us as real and vivid as the present. As the academic Victor Meyer Schoenberger writes, for millennia human human beings have lived in a world of forgetting. Behaviour, societal mechanisms and processes and values have incorporated and reflected that fact forgetting is a blunt moral instrument but for centuries it's afforded an invaluable kind of justice reputations heal old fights burn themselves out too much memory is paralyzing only by forgetting is it possible to advance the culture war is the characteristic war of the internet age because it is a war of endless remembering the same battles over race and gender fought year after year the same scandals interminably revived the same villains somehow always at the center of it all Funes was merely condemned never to forget. We are doubly condemned, for we are also condemned never to be forgotten. As Maya Schoenberger points out, to be preserved forever was the legend the KGB stamped on the files of its political prisoners. It was meant as a kind of curse.
1: Yes. Love it. Yes. I love that article. Yes, yes, yes just Absolutely so brilliant. important
0: isn't it to to not go and do any of those things uh, when you're scrapping on twitter in fact you shouldn't just scrap on twitter at all i don't think but but certainly there's so much in that i mean it, james marriott is well worth a read if you if you are able to uh, access articles from the times if, if you can see his uh, unbelievably young looking uh, byline photo on there click and read because he will always come up with an absolute gem
1: it just it just makes me think about how much it undermines change these the kind of artifacts this filing cabinet this archive of our you know old identities that you know i was vegan once Um, (laughs) and you know there's a big period of my life on facebook where i really did feel very strongly at that point in time about veganism i'm not anymore um, so anybody wishing to uh, hunt me down from the vegan community, community as a as a turncoat, as a traitor, you know, you could you could do that. But we try out different identities. We say this. I'm just going to bring it back to our 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 audience. You know, we, we say this to student teachers about that identity being something that is fluid, is dynamic, is ever changing. We try on those different coats. You know, am I am I going to be like my mentor when I come to be a classroom teacher, or are there bits that don't work for me? And you know. Digging up those things from our past in order to beat us with a stick just undermines the idea that someone can change and should strive to change and re-examine old views yeah i i, I agree with all of that and it, it got me thinking actually just back on the pre on my previous entry about um, a really good netflix documentary called pray away um which explores the um pain inflicted by ex-gay uh, ministries that sort of tried to convert and it centers around um People who formerly were part of that movement and part of the harm that was done to to those those people, um, and they're really kind of exposing themselves. And many of whom, you know, went on TV, and there are interviews with them, you know, multiple interviews with them where they're kind of spouting, uh, you know, their their views about gay conversion and being able to pray it away. And you know, and I, I I've got real sort of um, respect for them for for doing that documentary and coming out and saying, you know, that was me then this is me now
0: i love that idea he puts forward in that article that we we advance by forgetting we we often speak to the candidates don't we for the pgc and sort of say well we're not good we don't want to impinge on your private life you've got to have a private life as a teacher you know you're a human being you've got you've got a kind of hinterland but Sometimes you don't want that hinterland to be visible to pupils Googling various versions of your name in a, in a bored five minutes so that they can pass things around. And actually, there are services out there that will will delete your old tweets or, you know, things like that very simply. And I do think that people should should really consider the the benefits sometimes of letting the past slide off into obscurity and never be seen again, rather than having, you know, their whole life on display in the present.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's gotten me thinking we won't go down too much of a rabbit hole here, but about Kate Clancy and um, her yeah. book that we, we've we read, an, I read an extract from from uh, on this podcast a, a couple of years back. And, you know, she cut a lot of, of, of flack um, for some of the, the, the descriptions of pupils that she taught at the time but um you've since told me that some of those pupils have come out and said i was that person yes. and i'm okay with it and she was a cracking teacher
0: it was very interesting wasn't it because she did write some things which on reflection are a little bit you know if, yeah. if a student teacher was writing that about about a student we'd certainly be hauling them in and uh, throwing the book at them but you're right one of the one of the issues was that she'd referred to a to a girl with almond eyes and there was a, an article in one of the papers you know i was the girl with the almond eyes and basically I'd don't have a problem with it and I uh, I felt it was a very flattering description you know th- actually Lionel Shriver wrote an article on it as well mm-hmm. in which she, tried to get to the bottom of it and she said uh, you know that she she was calling out muddled thinking again she was saying she spoke to a black person and said well what is the problem talking about I think it was it chocolate skin I think she referred Mm. to and and Mm. the person said well it's no you know you're you're comparing this person to food and and, you know you wouldn't do that with a white person and and it it kind of you know dehumanises them by, by comparing them to food and then she comes back and says well what about talking about a peaches and cream complexion and it was very very Interesting, you know, there was it. It, and it was all another played out really on Twitter, one. and it all played out. And and some of the longer articles, as, as we're saying that, were very interesting. I mean, obviously, again, not to not to say that all that stuff that Kate Clanchy said in that book would be something we'd want our student teachers writing, but there was an outrage bandwagon, and a lot of people jumped on it, and it it got quite noisy, didn't it, for a while? Mm,
1: it really did. But I mean, I that that whole concept about advancing via forgetting, let's. Let's be a bit more forgetful, shall oh, we? Yes.
0: Let's spend <laughs> your Christmas forgetting.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, I am a thief. Oh. MFA. I know I, I shamelessly I am I'm going to confess if my he's sins you it off
0: me is it
1: yeah but I mean if we advance by forgetting then maybe you've forgotten so and I, so yeah, um, I'll get away with it
0: oh, I'll forget your thievery in two it's <laughs> <that's> fine
1: <laughs> so um, Patrick Stewart actor Sir Patrick, Sir Patrick student, Stewart, Student Stewart um he wrote an article in, I think, The Observer, but it was in The Guardian. The Guardian, um, And it was, I think it's a regular feature. You'll probably know, Tom, because you probably read it more regularly than me. But it's a moment that changed me. Yes, it is a
0: regular feature.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, written by uh, Sir Patrick Stewart himself. On the teacher who spotted his talent and saved him. And there are a lot of things uh, in this particular uh, article that resonate with me. I'm a big fan of Shakespeare and Shakespeare in education. And I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about social mobility. And I think it speaks to that. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. And hopefully you will have even more respect for teachers as a result. I never sat my 11 plus. On the day of the test, I wandered around the hills near the golf club above my hometown of Murfield in West Yorkshire. I ate my lunch sitting against a dry stone wall, looking down on the town where I could see my school pals in the playground during a break in the exams. I doubt if I would have passed anyway. And frankly, I just didn't see myself as a grammar school boy. Had I sat the test, I might never have met Cecil Dormond, a teacher at the secondary modern where I ended up, who would change my life when I was 12 by putting Shakespeare into my hands for the very first time. It was The Merchant of Venice. He gave copies to most of us and told us to look up Act Act 4 Scene 1, or the famous trial scene as I was to learn. He cast all the speaking roles and told us to start reading. We all did, but silently. "'No, no, you idiots, not to yourselves,' he yelled. "'Out loud, this is a play, not a poem. "'It's life, it's real.'" The first words, "'I have possessed your grace of what I purpose,' was the first line of Shakespeare I ever read. I barely understood a word, but I loved the feel of the words and sounds in my mouth. A 400-year-old writer reached out a hand in invitation to me that morning. I felt a sense of an internal, private me being released and connected with something mysterious, alien and exciting. I was hooked. Cess, as we called him, was my form master and my English teacher. I liked him at once, as did most of the children he taught. His style was very relaxed, funny and provocative. But when it came to teaching, he was articulate, interesting, engaging and most of all, passionate. I suspect Seth had already intuited that I loved to escape into the world of fiction and out of my dull, uncomfortable and sometimes scary home life, living with an abusive father. But he made literature and language feel like a part of our lives too. The same year as he gave, me the, gave us The Merchant of Venice, he cast me in a, in a play with adults, mostly my teachers. I had never acted before. The play was the wartime fast, The Happiest Days of Your Life. I played a young pupil named Hopcroft Minor. There were a hundred or more people in the audience, which should have been unnerving and intimidating, but I felt fearless and entirely at home. I felt safe on stage, and I always have since. Perhaps it was because I wasn't being Patrick Stewart, but Hopcroft Minor. Not long afterwards, Sess called me to the headmaster's office, where I met another influencer of my youth, Gerald Tyler the county drama advisor. He told me that the council was going to run an eight-day residential drama course at Calder High School in Mithalmroyd during the Easter break. The head said I could go as a representative of the school. This was where I first had formal acting lessons. Many years later I learned that Sess must have paid for me to go on the course himself. A few days before I left school At the age of 15, Cess asked me if I had ever thought of taking up acting as a career. It made me laugh because it was a ridiculous idea, but two years later I was offered a place at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, paid for by a scholarship. Usually the recipients were exclusively Oxbridge students, but they believed I had something that perhaps fitted in with other young people they encountered, although from a very different background. It took me years to find a way to thank Cecil Dormand, but when, he, when I did, I was in my first of 12 years as Chancellor of the University of Huddersfield, where I presented him with an honorary degree. A few years later, I made him a second thank you, and I invited him to the luncheon celebrating my knighthood, presented by the Queen that same morning. The host invited everyone to say a few words. Cess said, what the heck am I going to call him now? For decades, he called me, sir. Seth passed away a few weeks ago at the age of ninety six, this was written in October. He saved me when I was a boy, and my education was failing, and has without doubt been the most significant person in my life. If I had not met Seth what oh God, I'm cry. <laughs> if I had not met Seth, what would have happened to me? I'm so grateful for his belief in me. Rest in peace, sir. Oh gosh, it's an emotional time of year, Tom. Oh, I think my
0: You're worn my, out, at the end of term. Yeah Oh Patrick Stewart Much though I love hearing you read I wish that could have been Patrick Stewart reading that because he has got the best voice oh, in the business
1: hasn't he oh. so I'm just going to leave that there otherwise I'm going to end up blubbering yeah, in So it's p- been a
0: lot about teachers hasn't there Didn't didn't Adele get a bit of a Bit of a moment with her ex-teacher on stage in something the other day.
1: Oh, um, yes, she did.
0: Yeah, it's been quite a theme just at the moment. People thanking their teachers. So go off and thank your teachers, folks. It's Christmas and they're all tired. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on the brink of tears. <laughs> on the
0: brink of just collapsing in a heap. No, it's lovely, isn't it? And um, yeah, Patrick Stewart had a tough upbringing, I think. But
1: I just like that moment where he says that he really liked the words in his mouth, mm. even though he didn't understand what they meant and i just think that's that's uh you know whatever helps your kids find their way into a difficult uh a difficult difficult author difficult concept then you know go with it
0: yeah and that's why we become teachers isn't it okay moving swiftly on to my next thing now this this is another It's not light, but it's for anybody who likes to have a little bit of a deep think about their subject when they're off on a break. You might remember casting your mind back pre-Covid. We recorded a Christmas episode in which I brought an article by Carl Mayton about semantic gravity and semantic density. And I sat and tried to explain it while the rain hammered down above us
1: on the
0: skylight. Do you remember it practically drowned me out at one point? And I've got another bit by Carl Mayton, which I have been dragging around behind me for about the last year determined to bring to one of these light episodes but I've not had quite the right moment it's become so doggy now I'm just gonna bring it I don't <laughs> care that my on. last two bring articles it. were heavy I'm bringing you a chapter by Carl Mater now and you can just all deal with it um, this is a chapter from his book uh, knowledge and knowers towards a realist sociology of education stick with me um, and it's chapter four called knowledge knower structures uh, what's at stake in the two cultures debate why school music is unpopular and what unites such diverse issues it's a big old chapter so i'm clearly not going to read it to you because we'll be here all night um but he does do some very very interesting things in the chapter um, not least from my own point of view explain uh why it is or, or put a potential explanation out there for why it is that not many people take music at school but he also tackles the kind of divide between um, the sciences and the humanities and that was actually the bit that I found the most interesting he tries to do that thing that we, we talked about when we did the other Mayton article um, a couple of years ago which is he, he takes a thing that you sort of know to be true but you kind of can't nail it down and he actually nails it down so he goes on to kind of explain that uh, basically kind of boiling it right down in the sciences uh, you have a kind of shared um, thing which is the scientific culture the scientific method um, the idea that you're you're looking for kind of facts The idea that, that, you know, you've got things that you share even between the science disciplines that you all kind of understand, the scientific method and that kind of thing. So he makes the point that science have this strong knowledge structure which underpins the sciences. Um, He also suggests, rightly or wrongly, he suggests that science is a more kind of meritocratic culture where it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, doesn't matter if you're some kind of crazy guy in a shed or, or, you know, somebody rich and powerful. You've, you've got to know your stuff and you've got to be able to do your scientific method. You've got to have the science knowledge. So it's more about the knowledge than the kind of person you are. He then moves on to talk about the humanities and he suggests that the humanities don't sort of share concepts and knowledge and language in quite the same way as the sciences. They tend to be seen as quite discrete uh, subjects. He, he suggests that, uh, he says here, they, they have a weak grammar Things defined in ethereal, nebulous, even mystical terms, most famously and widely expressed following Matthew Arnold as immersion in the best that has been known and thought in the world. So there we go. That's that best that has been thought and said thing. <laughs> He's suggesting that that's a little bit of a nebulous concept, that the humanities are a little bit, a bit hard to nail down in terms of hard facts and knowledge, but that the thing that was hierarchical in the humanities was back in the past the sense that you had to be the right kind of person to get a classical education. You know, you had to be rich and white and male and go to Oxford or Cambridge and have good taste. And and that was the kind of person who got a classical humanist education way, way back in the day. And that's, Kind of the, the um, appearance of a more meritocratic society has weakened that hierarchy mm. and that the humanities haven't been able to fall back on the same sort of knowledge structures that science have. So he's kind of suggesting that's why the sciences feel like they've got a stronger kind of place in the world than, than the humanities which can be seen as a little bit wishy-washy. Anyway, he goes on to sort of put all this in, in some lovely diagrams and ask a bunch of university students what their perceptions are about different subjects. In terms of statements like, uh, let me have a look, um, anyone can do it, nothing special is needed, or you need to learn special skills or knowledge, which would be a kind of science-y type thing. You need to have natural ability or a feel for it. So, you know, something where you need good taste and inbuilt talent and all of that kind of thing, or only people with natural ability can learn the special skills needed. So you need the natural talents and being the right kind of person, but you also have to have the special skills. That's like the super difficult one. Mm. Um, the elite one. And he, he kind of plots the different subjects on this quadrant graph where either you have to be the right kind of person and have the talent and the taste, or you just have to have the specialist skills and knowledge, or you have to have both. And it's very interesting that we see things like science and psychology on his graph, kind of leaning towards the knowledge being the thing. And we see things like English being, you know, you've got to have the the right kind of talent and music sits right up on both of them. So he's suggesting that the perception of music is you have to be a real elite because you have to have natural talent and taste. But then you also have to learn a load of specialist skills in order to actually do the thing. And he basically suggests that for pupils, this kind of unconscious knowledge of this fact, he's not suggesting they kind of know this consciously but this subconscious idea that you have to be naturally talented at it and have really good special skills and knowledge means that basically it's just too much hassle for them for for the value of the subject to to go through that kind of pain barrier of doing all of those things and that that's why music doesn't get the numbers through the door that some other subjects would so i would just recommend that chapter as a really interesting one because it's one where he is actually nailing down where on this sort of two-dimensional continuum different subjects lie and it's just kind of interesting to think about it if you're a geek like me.
1: No, it's interesting and there are lots of sort of potentially damaging consequences if you aren't aware of the problems surrounding those sort of characterizations of the sort of people that are likely to. It it got me thinking about options and some of the damaging things that parents, teachers Peers can say oh, yeah. about subjects that um, you Sometimes know. Sometimes you're
0: senior managers, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. can
1: you know sw- characterize a person and and you know s- consequently stop them from going down a, a particular path that might have been the right one for them and might have felt in their gut like something that was for them.
0: Yeah and we've been talking about my various doctoral studies and the new curriculum and all of that and talking about the importance of getting some kind of idea of your subject and I've been going down the pain cave trying to look at some of these writers on sociology. Carl Maton is the only one who I can actually understand what he's going on about. Some of the other big names people like Basil Bernstein, people like Bourdieu who people throw around when they're talking about sociology education stuff i'm going to put my hand up because it's christmas and the time for honesty i haven't got a clue what they're on about it's almost impossible but carl mayton i actually can understand what he's on about and i quite like it actually
1: i quite like it and uh, what you do so well is that you you kind of you chew it all down for us (laughs) and put it across in a way way that uh,
0: yeah i try that
1: is clear which is um uh, the mark of a, a true teacher thank you you're welcome so we've um We've been talking about culture and culture wars quite a bit in this. We have. We've uh, got another one now. Yeah. Well, it's it literally it's it's a podcast, another podcast that is uh, aimed at sort of exposing different sort of um, examples of how the culture wars began and played out um, over the years. And it's a it's a John Ronson, um, BBC Radio Four podcast called "Things Fell Apart." Um, culture wars began in the seventies, apparently, and were a war of value which played out in some instances which is a particular interest to me via the school curriculum so in one episode Ronson talks to and I'm quoting Miranda Sawyer's review in The Guardian here, Ronson talks to Alice Moore, a US pastor's wife who manoeuvred herself onto a local schools board in the 1970s because she wasn't happy about the textbooks on the curriculum and somehow this leads to a Roger McGuff poem which Moore misinterpreted as being more permissive than it is and Ronson talks to McGuff and finds out what it was really all about it's just a really magical moment when you know you can see how far something can be misinterpreted um, her campaign this is um, Alice Moore's campaign also led to um, important black writers being excluded from school libraries, uh, all in in the name of protecting children. And I I don't know too much about it, but I'm I'm sure I noted a headline this week about Texas, the state of Texas, um, banning some topics, um, particularly worrying and troublesome with regard to uh, people from the LGBTQ plus community. So various different topics that um, are to be banned from school curriculum, it, it just um it was just an interesting podcast but uh, an interesting point about again the choices that we make about school curriculum and what those choices uh, reveal about what we what we value um in a in a, in a child's education
0: yeah, John Ronson's great, isn't he?
1: He's a great interviewer. He, he's got a whiff of... He, he, he's similar, reminds me of Louis Theroux. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he asks some really difficult questions, but in a very...
0: Wide-eyed and innocent way. Yes, yes.
1: exactly. So that's that. Excellent. Over to you, Tom.
0: Okay, it's time to start lightening up a little bit. And I know that we retired our well-being slot a little while ago, didn't we? Because it was getting a little bit repetitive. Um, but I, I've got one here that's got a little bit of a link to well-being. and. Are you tired, Em?
1: Yeah, Yeah. really tired. Me
0: too. I think everybody's tired, aren't they?
1: I keep saying that uh, it's like when the light, the petrol, the fuel light comes on on the dashboard. It came on about two weeks ago, and now I'm trying to drive, metaphorically, very gingerly to try and get myself uh, to the petrol station alive. Yes,
0: indeed. I would say the same. So I have brought an article from The Guardian uh, by Emma Beddington. It's one of these ones where somebody kind of tries something and reports back as to what it's like but i, I quite like this one because it, she is speaking to somebody called dr Soundra dalton smith who's written written a book the title of which would would cause me usually to run a mile from it sacred rest recover your life Review, renew your energy restore your sanity apparently it's <laughs> like one of these proper self-help ones but she was quite taken with this because it uh, it divided rest into seven types of rest. And so I actually read this. It, it wasn't the article that I thought it was going to end up being. And also, I'm going to stick my hand up and say, I am terrible at having a rest. You are. I'm really bad at it. I I I will just kind of keep going all the time. And then if I have rest forced upon me, as I obviously I will over the Christmas period... I just kind of sit there going, all right, I've stopped. Now what? What yeah. do I do? I'm, I'm very bad at it. I'm not, I'm not. you know, I'm somebody that could do with an article that lays out some ideas for what rest should actually look like. So Let's I thought I'd bring this. Okay. Um, so she starts off with an opening passage in which she basically says that everybody in the world is absolutely tired out because of COVID and stress and that sort of thing. And interviews this person who wrote this book uh, and then goes down this, this list of these seven types of rest where she tries all of the seven types of rest and kind of works out which one she's good at and which one she's rubbish at. So as a public service, I thought I would bring us all the seven types of rest so that we can actually have a go at some of them over Christmas. So she starts off with the obvious one, physical. She says, Emma Beddington, as a lazy desk-based homeworker, I'm rarely physically tired. You know, it's not a problem we'd have as teachers because we're frequently physically tired and mentally tired, but there we go. Um, I do, however, get stiff and achy, sit for far too long and pretzel my body into terrible shapes. So the idea there is to set a phone reminder to, you know move your neck around, stand up, wander about. And I know you've got one of these Apple watches, haven't you, that tells you to wander about every 50 yeah, minutes Yeah, I, swi- I
1: switched it off because it was just getting a little bit intrusive.
0: Yeah, but anyway, yep. Yeah, so get up, wander about. And that, that can be a tricky one, can't it? Sometimes remember to get some physical rest from whatever it is you're doing. The second one, mental rest. So she says mental fatigue, that befuddled, nervy, brain fog feeling. Forgetting what I was doing and missing important things because my concentration is shot is my constant companion. Anyone want to...
1: That's it. <laughs> yeah. Right there.
0: Brain like damp Weetabix, a friend calls it, which feels about right. <gasps>
1: That's so true. I also liked pretzeling myself into... double terrible shapes different... <laughs> <things> with <laughs> yeah.
0: your damp Weetabix brain. <laughs> yeah. So she says, it's chastening how easy it is to improve my focus with a basic technique. Time spent blocking out low yield activities such as email and social media and periods of concentration. So there's a good one. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can get in. A bunch of emails will come through and that's my day gone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. While I deal with
0: low yield. And, and also emails that will take a 30 second response. But then I'll find one from three days ago that needed 15 minutes of my thinking time that I haven't answered yet because I haven't found 15 minutes to concentrate on the far more interesting question I've had. So apologies, students, if that's one of you. Um, so the third one she refers to is emotional rest Uh, Emma Beddington says that having taken this online quiz by the author by far her worst score is for emotional rest it turns out to be the area she finds hardest to address she says one suggestion is to identify people who drain you as an introvert I fear that's everyone another tip is to risk vulnerability against which I have an almost physical reaction my mask is there for a reason The third is to cease comparison, but comparing myself unfavorably to others is my main hobby. None of these are exactly quick fixes. So, yeah.
1: (sighs) Those are really difficult, those... Last ones there. that's Yes. Were they the me. last ones? Um, Weetabix yes. Brain.
0: Weetabix Brain, and yes, getting drained by people. Yeah. Um, I get drained by people, don't I?
1: Yes. You've seen me. Emotional rest is yeah. a, is a tricky one, isn't it? It is tricky. It was
0: possibly a tricky one over Christmas as well, I would suspect. Yeah. Since you don't pick your, pick your company over Christmas. Um, the next one is social. I assumed social rest would mean opting out of socialising for a while, but Dalton Smith's social rest means spending time with people with whom you can be your unvarnished self.
1: Ooh, unvar- what's your unvarnished self look like, Tom? Do my you unvarnished the self.
0: Well, I think you probably see my least <laughs> varnished self, but uh, <laughs> yes, I, I prefer to keep the varnish on, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is true, isn't it? That you, you know, going out on these social things and... Playing apart hmm. and all that. So that's yeah. quite an interesting one. Sensory rest. She says, I know exactly what sensory input exhausts me, sound. Oh, we should be we should be friends, me and Emma Beddington. All of this is You're
1: gonna read her book, aren't you, I'm uh, Well, are the for books Christmas.
0: by the by the self help person that oh, she's Oh, uh, yeah. So see look,
1: Weetabix brain strikes again. Yeah,
0: but but no, I, I definitely like reading her columns. She says almost any noise, the battery bleep from a neighbour's fire alarm, a distant engine, the bathroom fan can obliterate my focus. While writing that sentence I told the dog off for licking himself too loudly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes i don't know what sensory input wears you out emma but i'm there with with sound i think
1: uh, i don't know it's probably not sound for me it's probably visual I, i'm sick of the sight of the computer screen it's yeah. definitely not uh definitely not doing me any good
0: so down to the last two creative rest so she says i instantly love dalton smith's advice to build sabbaticals into your life not a month-long writer's retreat it can be as little as 30 minutes doing something you choose away from the grind Mm. there we go we keep saying we need a sabbatical don't we
1: yeah i don't know whether it's to do anything particularly creative maybe that's because my brain is not feeling very creative right now
0: maybe not and the final one spiritual rest at the core of spiritual rest is the feeling we all have of needing to be really seen of feeling that we belong that we're accepted that our life has meaning which may come through voluntary work or there are other activities and she ends this uh, heavily edited thing that i've read out saying could i embrace rest purely for myself I should, this is basic maintenance, not self-indulgence. We can't function forever fueled by adrenaline and caffeine, fogged brains scrabbling to function, nerves frayed like a cheap phone cable. Sure, we can sleep when we're dead, but a little rest before that would be nice.
1: She's a great writer.
0: She is a great writer. And I will put my hand up and say I'm the worst person in the world at taking a rest. But goodness me, I could do with one right now.
1: Do your nerves feel frayed like a cheap phone cable?
0: My nerves in the last couple of weeks of term have felt frayed to the extent that I've wondered whether I should have my email account taken off me. For my own protection, <laughs> so that I don't respond in such a way that I have to spend the whole of the last week of term grovellingly apologising to somebody for ripping their head off. So far, I have succeeded. And how many more days have we got? Three and a half more days to go. Yeah. In which I have to remain filter. polite, professional, and focused in my emails. Yeah,
1: just got to keep breathing. Yes. Make, keep that filter. Keep that varnish.
0: Keep your varnish on. Keep and putting those
1: extra layers on.
0: My email at arm's length. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Seven types of rest for you, Emma. Enjoy them all.
1: Seven types of rest. I shall try to practice all seven over the Christmas period. Uh, although some will be more challenging than others. Right. Okay. getting a bit lighter. I'm going to do a plug now for the work, the the first novel of my second supervisor for my ED, Professor Steve Blandford, who is also dad to Beth Blandford, who is at Blandoodles, uh, who did our lovely podcast artwork and also uh, did the cover design for uh, Steve's first novel. His first novel is called Yant. That's spelt I A N T, and it was uh, released a little bit earlier this year by Cambria Publishing, who are a small press based in West Wales. Um, So, you know, important to support them, and you can currently buy a a paperback version direct from Cambria or from uh, the other big massive (laughs) online book retailer that I'm not going to name just out of spite. So Yant, just to give you a little bit of backstory on this, and these are Steve's words, Yant was partly inspired by the life of my grandfather who died when I was two. Only a little is known about him so most of the book is fiction. Most importantly, the book is about the unluckiest generation in recent memory whose lives began with the outbreak of one world war and ended with another. The novel is partly set in North Wales, the central character's home, and partly around Salonika, where he was sent to fight in a forgotten corner of the First World War. I have just ordered my copy and one of the ways that I'm going to rest over the Christmas break is to give it a read and I would um, I would recommend that you do too. So Steve, really looking forward to reading it. Um, yant everyone.
0: The multi-talented Blandford family.
1: Exactly.
0: Excellent. Okay um, and as I surface from the original depths that i plumbed with the start of the podcast i am also going light and uh, but only only in the way that i do light, like, which means it's got a little bit of a satirical edge to it as well i brought you a podcast as well i've even got you some audio clips from it so you may don the headphones that are in front of you okay so that you can have a little listen to this um this podcast has been out a little while and a number of listeners may have come across this already but it satirizes the current love of true crime podcasts, which I know a lot of oh. people really quite like listening to. Yeah. And uh, it's, it comes from The Onion, who are an online um, newspaper, satirical, hilarious, spoof newspaper in America. And so they are satirizing this, this particular fashion. I've got two clips for us, so I'm just going to set the scene with a, with a little clip from the beginning. What
2: makes a murder perfect? What elevates a murder from a regular ho-hum killing to a crime so gruesome and compelling that it deserves its own podcast? Does a murder like that even exist? Is it somewhere out there, waiting to be found the next time I open a letter from a convict or the next time I rest myself out of bed at 2 a.m. to check the Google Alert I set for the word decapitated? Or is it just a fantasy, A wild goose chase that will end in nothing but run-of-the-mill kidnappings, dull acts of sexual bondage, or the same old mass murder suicides that say nothing about the fabric of America in the 21st century. Is it all just a beautiful dream? I'm David Pascal, and I've been asking myself these questions for years. For the first time, I finally have some answers.
0: So, David Pascal is um, a spoof version of all of those East Coast American podcast hosts who like to dig up cold case murder stories um, and investigate them. He's, you know, a thoroughly mediocre journalist. He's an absolute creep. He's got a massive sense of his own self-importance. He's desperate to win a Pulitzer Prize for a podcast about a murder that speaks about the fabric of America. And this goes on for a number of episodes. He builds a computer called Ethel, uh, the extremely timely homicide locator. In the hope of finding the perfect murder to make a podcast about, there are a number of really interesting little little moments there that you almost blink and you miss, like the fact when it's it's churning out cold case murder cases for him, and then he decides he want to wants a filter um, for only female victims, and uh, you know things like that. He's he's a thoroughly creepy, horrible kind of person, but it makes some really interesting points about some of the ethics around some of these digging up of these cold cases so uh, just we've just got one more clip to share before we we kind of chew this one over and this is where he finally finds the case that is hopefully going to make his career
2: finally after years of searching for the perfect murder a murder that's engrossing and mysterious a murder that perfectly reflects our nation's current economic and social conditions a murder that comments on the past and future of intersectional feminism, a murder in which a really hot white girl dies. Homicide 9924R, Haley Price. We found Haley Price. Haley Price was a typical 17-year-old with big dreams and clear skin when she was killed. She was a high achiever, a debate champion, a prom queen, a doting girlfriend. But Haley also excelled at being murdered, One chilly Thursday morning in May, Haley was found on the floor of the local bottle cap factory that her father worked at. What's more, she was dead. Haley's case fulfilled every one of the requirements we had plugged into Ethel. It was gruesome. It was unsolved. It commented on the ugly underbelly of the American dream, the decline of manufacturing, modern beauty standards, the gig economy, factory farming, deforestation, saturated fats, the fragility of love, the golden era of television, and CO2 emissions. And most importantly, No one had done a podcast about it yet. 100% match. Retrieving. Coroner's report. The coroner's report the Bluff Springs Police Department provided states that Haley Price was shot three times in the head. She had multiple stab wounds. She was strangled and smothered with a pillow. She was soaking wet and had clearly been drowned. She had dirt of the same composition found on Mars under her fingernails. She had been dead for seven hours when her body was found, but her fingernails had been painted 15 minutes ago. She was wearing the class ring of a boy who wasn't her boyfriend, Brian, even though he's a great guy and deserves way better. She had scratches on her arms and a bite mark on her leg. She was wearing a shirt that, according to her best friend, Alex, was super ugly and not her style at all. Her hair had been cut into a Beatles mop top. So what happened to Haley Price? And how can I get in on it?
0: There we go. And so off he goes to this small town where he thinks that he's, you know, going to be greeted like a king because he's a podcast producer and and proceeds to try and solve this ridiculous murder mystery. But I, I enjoy that podcast because it does what I quite enjoy which is poke fun at something that's extremely fashionable but it does it it does it while also asking some pretty tough questions I think about about the current fashion for such things
1: oh it definitely does it was making me feel uncomfortable because I uh, I think I probably said on this podcast that I was a big fan of Serial um, which is the uh, the podcast um, by Sarah Koenig which tells a story uh, about a murder mm. a teenage murder and uh, yeah yeah
0: Yes, there's definitely <laughs> that one's in, in the side. I mean, that was the sort of original one, one wasn't it? I think it yeah. really got everyone's attention. But I, I gather and I must admit, I haven't listened to more, I've listened to that one, but none of the other, one, serial, but none of the other ones, um, just because I'm a bit busy. He does uh, do some quite good deflating of some things there and the sort of ego that's going on. And, and I suppose that question, which, which goes all the way back to that Lionel Shriver um, thing from the beginning, which is, why are these people going in and investigating these cold cases, is it to get justice for this person, or is it some kind of massive ego trip? I don't know. I'll just leave it to the listener yeah. to
1: decide. I mean, what I like from a sort of arty perspective is the way that he satirised, particularly that trailer. Yeah. It's the it's the kind of the, the single notes yeah. on the piano. It's all there, and it's the intonation and just the way that the grammar of uh, of the delivery is just is spot on. And yeah. it, all I was waiting for him to say was quote.
0: <laughs> yeah every cliche is present and correct the podcast is called a very fatal murder and you can find it on all the all the usual podcast places and it's from onion public radio
1: i shall be doing that presently as soon as we finish this week i will be downloading episodes right okay so i was scraping the bar- barrel a bit as we got to the end so this is my penultimate entry and I, i've I highly suspect that Tom will squirm to within an inch of his life Ooh, you on one this one. You're getting back on me here. Yeah, I mean, this has very little substance um, other than the fact that Christmas for me and some members of my family, not all, is a time when we really like to play party games. <laughs> I know that they're probably Marmite for listeners out there. And I know that last Christmas definitely put the kibosh on party games in person, which are my favourite. I mean, I tried to do it online, but it's never quite the same. Um, on boxing days in, in uh, the Thea family uh, household, we, we tend to um, play all manner of party games and drag uh, the, the more reticent members of the family into the, the frivolities, kicking and screaming. They end up having a good time, even if they're putting it on. <laughs> um, so I just thought I would share Two of my favourites. And I'd ask you, Tom, uh, mm. I know that uh, party games are probably one of your least favourite way- ways to spend it's your time. It's not that
0: interesting? We've never, we've never spent Christmas together and yet you've, you've pretty much nailed me right there. Well
1: done. I've, I thought I might. I, I do have a flashback memory of uh, trying to get you to play um, a similar sort of party game with some of my drama bods. Some of my students at the uh, the end uh, of the year and uh, you looked like you wanted to find where did the nearest I exit was. sharpest. was Shrunk
0: backwards into their drapes and I in the <laughs> I studio, so. was trying to camouflage myself in the curtains.
1: <laughs> I think so. Um, OK, so my two top favourites are articulate which for those of you who don't know it you are given a word or a phrase and you have to communicate it to your uh, team members to guess by saying anything other than the words that are on the card and it's just a it's just a fun game and there are lots of different permutations of it we tend to play it in three rounds where you play the first round um as I just described, the second round is all the same things that you put into the bowl, you kind of put them in yourselves, you write them on, slips of paper put them into a bowl first round is like articulate second round you can only say one word so it's all the same things coming up again and again but you can only communicate it in one word that's obviously not a word that is on the card and finally probably your favorite round tom you can only communicate what are on the cards through mime Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) so that's one of my favorite games um and the other one is a game called werewolf um which I think has various uh, different permutations, different characters but the basic premise is that uh, people are designated as werewolves in a fictional village or villagers and there are lots of various other characters that you can um, you can distribute amongst the players um, there is kind of like a joker character who uh, who is the kind of the narrator, the person who um, that facilitates the game um, everyone goes to sleep at night the werewolves rise, they choose a victim they, uh, they make that clear to the person who's facilitating Um, they all wake up uh, somebody has been killed, and the village, including the werewolves, who are sort of unbeknownst to the rest of uh, the players, um, they have to decide who they would like to lynch. They're trying to kind of root out the werewolves, um, and uh, yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's kind of a big social experiment, really. The person who's facilitating gets to see how people really behave when they're trying to root out werewolves, and um, and yeah, fun ensues. So, werewolf, play that with your families if you uh, are so inclined, and. Uh, definitely get the squirmier members of the family on board because I'm sure they'll end up having a good time in the uh, end.
0: Oh yes that was the one I had to play with your students that time That's wasn't That's the it? one they, they you didn't get know flashbacks. what to make of me because I didn't say very much do no, you remember they were I a bit do. bemused by me and couldn't work out whether I was a, a goodie or a baddie or whatever they are in that in that thing yeah they couldn't work out what to make of me. Oh well, there we go some party games for you to enjoy listeners while I shall sit and watch.
1: <laughs> and you're not going to share even if you have anything palatable what would your if oh. you had to put it to the head time. Time. Gun to the head, time even.
0: Um, I used to quite I quite enjoy playing Pictionary with my kiddies. They're quite good at that. Hey, yeah, I'll
1: take that. Which I'll is hilarious
0: because I'm very bad at all things visual. I'd much rather yeah. not do it visually. But yeah, it's quite a fun game.
1: Okay, we're going to be playing that one day. Okay
0: explain to me this last bit now Emma.
1: <laughs> this is so indulgent.
0: This is something I don't really understand because I should have done my homework and listened to a podcast and I haven't.
1: Sorry. <laughs> uh, this is a real guilty pleasure of mine and this person actually who is the creator or, or the presenter of this podcast is a Guardian podcast called Comfort Eating um, and it's presented by Grace Dent who is uh, a food critic. Um, you may have seen her. Uh, if you watch, if uh, if you watch MasterChef, uh, the UK version, she's often um, a food critic who gets brought in um, at kind of high-stakes moments in MasterChef, and she critiques the food of uh, of, of of the contestants on the show. And I just love her. I unashamedly love Grace Dent. I love the way that she describes food. I love the way that she describes people. She always kind of says it in in really kind of straight to the jugular um, ways um, and uh, always has me nodding. But she's she's kind of got an air of... Sort of, oh, she's a bit of a rascal, is Grace Dent, and, and that's what I really like about it. But she really loves food, and I, I I really think that she has found something quite unique. Um, I'm sure she's not the first person to have done it, but the whole premise of this podcast is that she gets famous people on the show they have to bring for her at the start of the episode and interestingly during lockdown she got them to send to her their favourite comfort food snack um so you know she asks what do you eat when you're home alone you might not tell but your favourite celebs will um is the kind of blurb to this to this podcast um so she asked them to provide um their favourite kind of comfort food snack she has to try it and she tries it live on air and one of the kind of criticisms of the podcast is that you can hear mastication <laughs> as she starts the episode. Um, but there are lots of love. I won't give away too much, but there's a really nice one where Stephen Fry comes in and he provides. Um, I can't remember the name of the fish. Oh, gosh. He told it's, me this it's, yeah, the other day. Yeah, it's not kipper. It's is not it sardine. Said. Not pilchards. No. It was something I'd never. Skippers. That's what you That's said. That's it. I remember. I was it's well paying attention. remembered skippers on toast with tomatoes was his comfort food of of choice and he you know she just describes it you know and he's sat in front of the TV and it's dripping The, the, the oil from the skippers is dripping down his chin and he just loves it but what she also does so after she's done that she interviews them but she interviews them through the lens of you know what food was in your life what, what were you eating at this point in time and you know it, obviously that brings a lot of kind of hilarity and, and and lightness to the podcast but it also is very poignant is a really interesting episode where she interviews Russell T Davis whose partner very sadly died of cancer and, and he kind of gave up work for several years when um, he, when his partner was at the point to which he was needing palliative care. And one of the main things that he was able to give to his partner was food um, and was to cook for him and he talks about that as being a, a real privilege to be able to do that so um, without getting too much into the doldrums because we've been there in this episode already we're going to keep it light I have tasked Tom with bringing for me and I've done the same his favourite comfort food snack so Tom Ooh,
0: okay. what have you brought for me all right got to go and drag this out of the bag
1: oh okay so I'm going to do as Grace does um, and describe that I've now been left alone um, I, I must Tell you actually and describe that uh, already on the table is an array of uh, <laughs> of cutlery. We've got quite a few spoons of varying sizes. Uh, I can't see any forks, I don't know whether that was just because you couldn't find any, but I can see two knives. So I'm now, already I've had a rummage okay. in the
0: cutlery section. I mean, this is a this is one a, a ridiculously simple, um, oh, but it's in two plates. parts. I've brought you a plate as well that's got a Christmasy plate for you there.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Um, So yes, when I was little and growing up every Sunday, I mean, I I guess loads of people would probably do like big Sunday dinners, memories and things like that. We would always have that. But then my mum would always bake bread on a Sunday. So every Sunday tea time was uh, freshly baked bread and, you know, late 80s, early 90s Sunday telly. Um, of the type that you would watch when you were little. Now, um,
1: Grace Dent would interrupt at this point, so I'm going to channel in Grace Dent. Describe okay. for me. This is the voice just the the describe the telly? for me. You wake up. It's the morning. Describe the smell.
0: Well, there wouldn't be one because she baked it in the afternoon.
1: Oh, <laughs> damn it! There we go. The, the Weetabix brain strikes again. <coughs> um, okay.
0: Yeah, so yes, the lovely smell of bread would be permeating the house in the afternoons. And then we'd, we'd, we'd just have bread and stuff on top of bread, like cheese and stuff like that. So it's not very exciting. Um, but the bread was really nice. I have not baked you some bread, Emma, I'm sorry, because oh. I didn't have time. So I just got some bread. From the shop, um, and I got some some cheese and things.
1: Oh, but I I thought
0: that was a bit basic, so I thought I'd better get a second sort of um, angle to this because if I just said bread and cheese, now clearly I've got very nice memories of the the freshly bakedness of the bread, and you know it was all lovely and warm, and I'd be sitting in there eating said bread and stuff and watching you know terrible studio bound BBC sunday night telly type things so i thought i'd better find another angle and i would say that one of the other things that links with that which i like very much and um, I, I don't know how, how are you with kind of seasonal sort of you know do you do you mind the winter do you not like the winter i love the, the and all seasons kind of I, yeah. I,
1: I am i'm a fan
0: because some people in the teaching profession kind of don't like it do they autumn winter time because it means they're at the start of a long academic year and the night's getting dark and all that kind of thing and um, I tend to quite like the autumn even though it's the start of a new year actually because I, yeah, I like my job so I don't really mind but one of the things I love about the autumn is the food the fact that you can make food and um, in the autumn so I brought some things to go upon the bread and the cheese
1: mm-hmm.
0: I have brought <gasps> some chutney made with plums and green tomatoes and all various bits of fruit and veg and things from my parents' garden. We would wow. tend to make that in the autumn and that would be very tasty. Wow, um, my tummy something. just
1: rumb- rumbled at that. Rumble on, mic.
0: And I have brought some plum jam from a very good plum tree which sits in the center of the town where I grew up where we would snaffle the plums and turn it into jam. Wow. So I have brought those things because my, one of my favorite things about the autumn is all the homemade food. And it's all stuff that you can just chuck on top of a lump of bread and chew it down I did think about bringing some slow gin because that's the other thing you make in the autumn but I thought drinking something that was 40% while we were trying to record might not be the cleverest move
1: might not but definitely one day and I can see for those of you out there who've never had the privilege of eating Snowdonia cheese oh yes very tasty. and is that black Bo- oh my god it is it is, yes. it is black bomber Snowdonia company cheese uh, sorry, Snowtonia Cheese Company. I think mm. I'm salivating and I'm 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 losing losing all cognition now because my stomach my cheese. stomach is now taking over <laughs> as they say it's the second brain so um yeah yeah I mean I love the story I can't wait to tuck in was there a particular choice of of, of bread type of bread that you went for um, were you particularly picky or well there...
0: my mum just used to make it with half white and half brown flour so it was kind of like brown bread it would either be a big loaf that you could chop big slices off or it would be kind of reasonably Hefty buns that you could just grab one of and chop in half and fill with yummy things mm. and sit watching your telly.
1: And did you make a sandwich a big... of this, or was it you know? And which order did you put the cheese on and the chutney on? It, oh, I mean, these in, I just... these details are important to ah, Grace Dent. Well, I think like... the beauty
0: of comfort food is is less detail, more ramming things on bread and stuffing it in your mouth. To be <sighs> honest,
1: what would you? So you'd be drinking. What would you be drinking with this back then? Oh, when, when I was a kid?
0: kid, water, boringly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know. That's
1: a bit Dickensian. I know
0: tap water, brown bread, cheese,
1: cheese, and homemade bread.
0: goodies, oh, and uh, beautiful. Yes, 1980s telly.
1: Well, we will spare our listeners of the, sound uh, of of the, the sounds of this because I, I fear that there is yeah. no um, sound, no nice way of eating There's cheese I can and do bread it's in the edit. No, no, no to absolutely to save
0: not. us from that. But there we go. We can we can have a little go on that once we've hit the stop button, if you like. So there we go. Sunday night. In my house,
1: I'm there. And I'm was, there, was there was there was there a log fire?
0: There was not a log fire. It was a very very old house. It was a very old townhouse. But no, it just had a it had a gas fire. It's very very 80s uh, with a gas fire. and A very small telly. And uh, what would you yeah. be
1: watching on a Sunday night? Well, I was thinking about
0: this. I, I dug one of these out for my kids actually, and they, uh, Rebecca, my oldest one, really enjoyed watching it. There was. Um, there was a production that the BBC did of the Chronicles of Narnia back in the 80s. I don't know if you've ever seen was it, it.
1: Was it a cartoon or was no,
0: it? No, it was, it was a filmed one, but it was I was watching it with, with Rebecca the other day and it was clearly done in, in the studio. So obviously we're very used to Thing yeah, I think there's a film version of a lot of the Narnia films now, isn't there? And it's absolutely rocking with computer-generated wolves and you know special effects a go go. But this one was very clearly done in the studios at Television Centre with a bunch of kind of BBC Repertory Company people wearing various bits of fur and lots of face paint. And the computer-generated bit is practically non-existent. and It's very creaky and very eighties.
1: one, it's dark. It's quite dark, isn't it? Is it is
0: quite dark. It's got a very nice theme tune with a sort of French solo in it yeah went down very well with with uh, my kids strangely enough but that was a that was a big fixture of sunday night telly for a long time when i was little
1: oh and it's got a lovely moment with the turkish delight in it yes yeah,
0: gloriously hammy bbc rep company panto white witch who really yeah. is chewing the scenery so hard i was quite surprised there was any of it left by the end <laughs> She's an absolute. She's brilliant. She's properly, <laughs> properly panto. Brilliant stuff.
1: Oh, thank you for that description because this is this is it. This is what Grace does. She kind of teases out all of those sensory details so we can be there with you with your comfort yep. food snack. Um, I fear that my snack is going to look significantly lesser in comparison to your it's lovely right. bread and uh, wow. Snowdonia Cheese Company Black Bomber. Okay, guilty pleasure. Expose. <laughs> you're gonna to have to describe now. I think
0: you're gonna surprise me now, or is this gonna come as no surprise? We have a bowl,
1: and this is important. Okay, the, the the bowl is important.
0: Okay, this is good. We have some kind of crisp-like substances. Oh, onion ring crisps. That's very interesting. Do you know they used to sell those at break time in my primary school for ten p bacon crispies Okay. These are all s- crunchy snacks of, of of unknown substances made into shapes, listeners. There we go. They're in a bowl. You can just about hear that. Going
1: okay. around, around in the bowl. Important details. Okay. Now, the the crisps are important. I like corn snacks specifically. With the more the, the most dusty flavoriness on them, the better, and they tend to be the um, supermarket's own brands, yeah. and I have tried pretty much every supermarket in the uk's own brand of crisps to find my favorites um and Deputation. sainsbury's um i'm probably not really allowed sorry we're not the to, bbc um, you can give, not a, the give bee, them a name check but i am gonna give them a name check yeah sainsbury's own brand of bacon kind of frazzle type crisps and onion rings are they're just up there and so just shamefully when I get home particularly on a Friday night from work when I'm really tired and I really can't be bothered to cook I do end up either ordering takeaway or getting my bum into the kitchen and, and cooking um, but the first thing I will do is I will and it has to be in a bowl it can't just be out of the bag it has to be in a bowl because I need to be able to to, to select and eat in order of priority from uh, the from the least covered in that delicious dust to the most covered in delicious dust. So I save the most, and I get very, very disgruntled if my partner comes in towards the end of said bowl of crisps and eats the best ones that I've been coveting um, all day.
0: I assumed the bowl was because, you know, given the state we're in by the end of a week, sometimes in this place, I thought you'd just sort of immerse your face in it, <laughs> <or> just lie. <laughs> prone on the floor with your head in the bowl? No,
1: it's a bit more dainty. I, okay. It's a little bit more dainty and I like mixing them up. So I like to give them a good, good shuffle around. So I've got a mixture. Um, yeah. And that with a cold glass of beer. I mean, that's, that, that's the sweet spot for me.
0: Well, as I said, the onion rings remind me of the strange crisp. I don't know if this was the same for you in my primary school. you You could go and pay 10p. For a packet of crisps that you would never see in any shop only in school they came from some unknown place but onion rings were definitely involved
1: oh i mean if 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 we were going to get to the absolute uh, pièce de résistance it would be the beef space raiders would be in the mix as well specifically the beef ones not the pickled onion ones the beef ones
0: there we go, your love of crisps. You're going to immerse yourselves in those once we've hit the button, are you?
1: I am going to do just that, and I'm also going to tuck into your veritable feast of cheese Lovely. and chutneys, um, bread, delicious bread. So there you have it. Great stent, comfort eating. I highly, highly recommend.
0: Lovely. Well, it is time for you to leave us now and go and have your Christmas. Your seven types of rest, your crisps your bread and cheese and all the rest of it and with what little of my voice i have remaining uh, i will wish you a very merry christmas i wish you a very merry christmas as well yeah
1: I? And, and if there's one present that you can give to us it's a follow on twitter at talk teaching pod yes. is our twitter handle and um even better if you could leave us a little review um that would be yes. a, a lovely present for us both a but nice we wish one, you preferably yes a nice one please and uh yeah have a great christmas and it's happy it. new year yes
0: and we'll see you soon you've been listening to Emma and Tom talk teaching a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze our grateful thanks and Christmas wishes to everyone who listens to us and everyone who's appeared on the podcast this year podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart sorry about the bells Cameron we're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pods, and as ever, we'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care, Merry Christmas, and enjoy teaching.